Hey, good morning. My name is Amy. I'm a volunteer here. I'm reading our scripture, which is from Isaiah 9, verse 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You've enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is God's word. What's going on, everybody? My name is Jordan. I am uh, one of the pastors here at Renaissance. Hey, I have a couple of pet peeves. Uh, Both of these are first world problems for sure. Uh, The first is when people chew with their mouth open, especially people in the hair with bagels in your mouth right now. I daydream. I'm not a bad person for this. I hope I'm not too bad. But I daydream about standing up and slapping the food out of their hands. Uh, Another pet peeve I have, and this one probably is even worse, is I hate it uh, when I walk into a movie late. I hate it when I walk into a movie late. I feel like I've missed everything. Even if I've only missed uh, a minute or two, I feel like I've missed the introduction of the characters. I feel like I'm not going to understand what the writer and the director and the producer intended to communicate to me uh, in giving us this story. And I want to get to the movies early. I want to get there for the coming attractions. I want to see what Bradley Cooper movie is coming out next. I want to see it all from beginning to end, and this is the best way for me and for you to understand a story. Now, Scripture is a story. It's a story about God, actually, and uh, the story of Scripture is an amazing one, and it's one that I feel that for a lot of people, we're coming into it kind of halfway. Uh, you're coming into the movie halfway, and we might have all of these things that we talk about in church um, and talking about Jesus and a sacrifice and a cross, and people are singing songs and they're raising their hands and worship. And even if it might move you a little bit emotionally, you might not understand the full picture. You might not understand the full part of the movie. Now, Advent is a season in Christianity that we pause, for example, for a second. And we look at the first part of the story. We're looking at why it's so important that Jesus had to come. And today we're going to look at a bunch of different things, looking at why Jesus came and unpacking the story a little bit from the beginning. And and hopefully uh, in seeing a better picture of the story, we would see more of the beauty that's trying to be communicated to us 
uh, by the authors, um, talking about Jesus, talking about God. Why is it so important? Should it change our lives? Why does it matter so much to you? Should it be something that really radically alters your life, or should it just be something uh, that you can add to the list of other things in your life? Now, Advent means um, the arrival of an important person. And whether or not you are a Christian, whether or not you know um, what it means to follow Jesus, regardless of wherever you are in the faith, you might have just come with a friend today and you're checking church out for the first time or the first time in a long time. And no matter where you stand, um, I can confidently say that the most important person to ever arrive on this earth is Jesus. Now, you don't have to agree with the theology behind Jesus. You don't have to agree about the cross or the resurrection or any of that stuff to know and to agree that he was the most important person that's ever arrived. Uh, Let me read a couple of statistics from Jesus' life. Um, His followers wrote the New Testament, the bestseller of all time, the bestseller of all time translated into thousands of languages. Uh, The New Testament and the Bible are so widely distributed that they're not even on the bestsellers list anymore because they so dwarf whatever's in second and third place that it's understood that the Bible so surpasses it that they took it off the list. In this short years of three, uh, three years of ministry on this life, Jesus changed the trajectory for billions of people. And to this day, there are thousands and thousands of organizations in his name. Uh, there are hospitals and schools, some here in Harlem. The St. Luke's Hospital is named after a follower of Jesus named Luke uh, that wrote the Gospel of Luke, the life and the teachings of Jesus. Now, Jesus did all of these things, um, and he did it uh, not coming from a major city. He wasn't from Rome. Uh, Jesus was from a little spot called Nazareth, uh, which would be almost like, imagine the most influential person in the history of the world coming out of Staten Island. It's impossible. (laughs) Now, here's the craziest statistic or fact. Um, Every time you check your calendar, every single time you check your calendar, every time you look at a date, um, Jesus Christ is your reference point. Every other event in history and every event on our calendar is dated by how many years since it's been that Jesus Christ appeared on earth. The words B.C. and A.D., um, B.C. means before Christ, A.D. is Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Every single event, you don't even have to be a follower of Jesus, every single event is marked by when Jesus appeared. Today, it's 2016 years since Jesus appeared. Now, that's how important Jesus is, and his coming was not just important, but uh, as the, the original Christmas story tells it, man, it was really, really good news In Luke 2, it gives us a scripture, uh, giving us the original Christmas story. Uh, It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy. I want you guys to pause now for a second. Good news and great joy. Here's what I hope we discover in Advent, that you discover the the good news of Jesus and also the great joy of what it looks like to follow him. For all of the people today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth. 
and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Now, one of the things that I hope to accomplish in these next three weeks is really looking at why Jesus came. Why was it such good news? Why did it bring great joy to people? Why is it such a a big deal? Um, And more importantly, what does this mean for you and you personally? Uh, One of the best ways we understand Christmas this whole season is in gifts. And um, you guys can probably think about some really good gifts that you've gotten over the years. Uh, For me growing up, the best gift was always a remote control car. Uh, I can go outside with it and, and run it down the street. It was a pretty fantastic thing. Uh, But I've also gotten some pretty terrible gifts. Uh, We have a secret Santa in my family, and one year, I got a strawberry-scented liquid soap in a heart-shaped container. (laughs) And it was like, you shouldn't have. (laughs) No, really, you absolutely should not have. You should have just kept that, my friend. And I used it for a couple of weeks, and it actually smelled pretty good, but... That was a re-gift gone wrong. Uh, Those are the gifts that we can take it or or we can leave it. And when the Bible describes Jesus as a gift, it doesn't mean that he's a gift in in that sense. Um, Actually, all throughout Scripture, it talks about Jesus being a gift um, that was given to us. Uh, One of the most famous Scriptures in all of the Bible, you know, you might be new, and I'm sure you would have seen this Scripture at a football game. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son So whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And the Apostle Paul, who wrote about two-thirds of the New Testament, uh, when Paul starts talking about Jesus, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Now, here's one of the interesting things about Paul. Paul had a way with words. He wrote uh, two-thirds of the New Testament. He knew how to break down uh, different languages. Paul was a brilliant, brilliant writer. And when he gets to try to talk about who Jesus is, he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That this gift is so good, so vast, so amazing that you really can't adequately capture with words uh, how fantastic of a gift it is. And my hope for us in these next three weeks is that we'll understand that and we will feel that for real. And that Jesus Christ would truly be uh, that type of gift. Now, Jesus is not the type of gift of the nice pair of boots you wanted. Um, Jesus is much more like it uh, if somebody were to give you a gift on a a book on how to lose your gut. If somebody passes you that book, uh, it doesn't make you feel too good. I mean, it might be the best diet book in the world. It might be written by a proven author, but that gift uh, by its nature is a confrontation. That gift by its very nature means that you have a little gut that you need to get rid of. Now, when Scripture talks about Jesus as a gift, uh, it it talks about Jesus not as a pair of boots or a nice coat um, or or a nice pair of sneakers. I wear size 11 for anybody shopping for me. (laughs) But he talks about Jesus as a diet book. It's like when somebody passes you a breath mint and they're like, hey, have a mint. You're like, no, I'm good. They're like, no, no, no. (laughs) I insist. Please, please, I beg you, take this. The gift of Jesus uh, is an industrial strength breath mint offered to us. Icebreaker. Jesus is the, the ultimate mouth-sized icebreaker to suck on. Now, this is really, really important that we get this, because there are gifts that you have received for years and years, and you have stuck them in the corner, and they don't really do anything for you. 
And for a lot of us, um, this is the way our faith is. It's something that we put in a corner, we put in a place, and it's not something that really moves us uh, from day to day. It's not something that has captured us. It's not something that has moved our hearts. It's not something that has changed the way we see God. It's not something that affects us on a day-to-day basis. And for a lot of us, our walks with God are passionless, uh, dutiful lists of things to do. And you, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the cross, it's not something that has your heart. Now, the last thing that I want for myself, my fear for me and my fear for you, is that your walk with God would be that, a passionless, just march towards doing something because you feel like you have to do it, or you would make your parents proud by going to church, but the gift of Jesus Christ really didn't move your heart. Imagine two people that were given the gift of free rent for a month. Uh, The first one is a woman. She's killing it. Uh, She has risen the ranks at her firm. Uh, and she's making about a cool $250,000 a year, you know, nothing, nothing too crazy, right? And she is given a gift of free rent for a month. And it's like, oh, that was really nice. Thank you. Even if her rent is really expensive, I'm sure she'll be grateful. I'm sure she'll be um, happy to receive that free gift. But it won't change her, really. Now imagine there's a guy that lost his job six months ago. And six months ago, he's been looking for a job every single day. And the bills are piling up. Day after day after day after day, uh, he's looking for jobs every day. He can't find anything. He's getting the door shut in his face. And he's coming home, and he sees whatever he had in savings has dwindled down to nothing. And he has to borrow money just to put food on the table. He's embarrassed. His kids are crying one day because there's an eviction notice on the door. And he knows that any day now, the sheriff's office is going to come and remove him from that apartment. He hears the door open in the basement. It's the sheriff's office coming upstairs. Kids are crying. Everybody is scared. They're not going to have anywhere to live. They're going to be thrown out on the streets. And as he hears the keys jingling on his way, on the way upstairs, the phone rings. And then someone from the court stops and says, hey, good news. Someone just paid your rent. The gift of Jesus Christ to us. Uh, as Isaiah puts it, he says, for us, to son, a son is, uh, for, us to, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. This is what Isaiah is getting at. Jesus Christ is entering into the world. He's entering into uh, history, not as something you can take or you can leave, but to people who were wandering around in darkness, people who were wandering around without any light, without any hope. And Jesus Christ comes into that situation to give life. And God gives us his son at that specific moment. And that is the first part of the story that we so often either forget or or don't talk about nearly enough. Now, in uh, one scripture, Matthew 13, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God. And this is the way he talks about it. And this this is the way I hope and pray that I receive Jesus both this season and in every season to go forward. Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46, Jesus says this. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. And when a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went out and sold all he had and bought that field. This is what Jesus says the kingdom of God is really like. The kingdom of God is not more guilt on you so that you can uh, feel like you've um, earned it enough. The kingdom of God is a treasure that's hidden in a field. And when you find that treasure, you're willing to risk it all and give away everything else just to find that one thing. 
Later in that same scripture, Jesus says it's like a, a, a precious pearl that has been hidden in the field. And once that person found it, they got rid of everything they had just to buy that field to get this one jewel. Now, this is the hope that Jesus is uh, communicating to us in his coming to earth, that Jesus has to be that good news that brings that great joy. Uh, and it's not because he's a gift that you can take it or you can leave it. He is the gift that you've always needed. He is the gift that I've always needed. And so often we live life as if um, either A, we're trying to earn it, or B, um, that you know, we can take it or we can leave it. And I, and I think a part of that is we don't understand the first part of the story. And listen, I don't know where you're at spiritually. I don't know how long you've been in church. Uh, I don't know how many times you've read the, the, the birth story of Jesus. But I pray that we would see this thing afresh and anew uh, in a way that would make Jesus Christ a treasure, something that you cherish. Your life and my life is all about what we find to be beautiful. If you want to find someone who is devoted to health and to fitness, it's not because they've read an article and felt guilty about their health. It's because they find health and fitness to be beautiful. What you find to be beautiful, what you find to be attractive, what, you, what captures your heart will dictate your life. And here's our hope for Advent season, that Jesus Christ would capture our hearts. And in doing so, he would uh, dictate our lives. Now, the story of God that we talked about, that we're kind of coming into uh, in the third scene, uh, is an amazing story. Uh, a lot of theologians uh, have different ways for how they break up Scripture, but here's one way uh, that I've best understood the story of God, and it's in four different scenes, uh, four different acts. Uh, the first is creation. The second is the fall. The third is redemption. And the fourth is restoration. Creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Now, creation basically means that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the, and the earth, and that in God's creation, he has designed this world, and he has designed me and you for good. That when God looked at us, he says, this was good. God was pleased with his creation. God was pleased with this world. God was pleased, uh, but the, it didn't stay like that for long. If you've ever read the book of Genesis, you don't have to get very far uh, before you see uh, the second scene happen, which is the fall. And we talked about this a, a number of times at Renaissance, but uh, now we're giving some more specific language to it. And the fall is basically that you and I were damaged by sin. And this world was damaged by sin. And you don't have to agree with even uh, the, all of the teachings of Scripture to see this in both the world and in, in your own life. All you got to do to see that we're living in a fallen world is go on your Facebook feed. <laughs> Scroll for 10 seconds and tell me if you don't see any evidence of a fallen and broken world. Now, I could see it on my own life um, that you and I are damaged by sin. Uh, we are the source of our problems. You and I are the common denominator of every single problem we have, every relationship dysfunction. And that it's not that I'm a, a, um, a, a terribly bad person, but that I share in a human fallenness, and you share in that same condition. This is why I want to exaggerate stories when I talk about myself, because I want to feel important. It's because I'm prideful. It's why I'm selfish when it comes to doing dishes around the house. Uh, I'll pretend like I don't see it all the time or to serve uh, my wife or my kid in, in one way or another. It's because I'm selfish. The easiest thing for me to do is to be selfish. Everything else is a, is a, is a job. 
to think about someone else, to have to consider someone else, that doesn't come naturally. Just like in physical space, gravity is a very real thing. The easiest thing for you to do is to remain um, to the ground. And it, to get off the ground requires that you work against the natural force of gravity. In order for you to do godly things, you have to go against the natural force of you and I, our, our fallenness, our brokenness. And it, we're, we're all damaged by sin. Every single relationship problem that, that we get to talk to people about, it's not that... Uh, uh, it's not any of these tangential things that people argue about. Say, so you got two very selfish people that are in relationship with each other. And that will always cause conflicts. Now, in this scripture that Amy just read about um, in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah gives us um, some more context to the fallenness and the, the, the people that he was writing this prophecy to. So Isaiah was a prophet, which meant that Isaiah spoke about things that were going to happen. Um, and he spoke from God about things that, were, that, uh, that God was going to bring to pass. And what was going on in Isaiah's life, what was going on in the nation of Israel was brokenness that they can feel. It was real darkness that they could sense in the scripture. Um, uh, verse nine in, uh, chapter 9, verses 1, he says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. And what was happening at the end of chapter 8 of Isaiah is that they were under famine and they were crushed into all sorts of uh, physical and physiological problems. Uh, They were running to and from. They had really corrupt systems of government, and they were looking everywhere they could to find hope. And in their darkness, Isaiah prophesies to them that hope is coming. And that he says, for to us a child is born, and for to us a son is given. And that hope is not necessarily a place. Hope is not a situation. Hope is not an understanding. Hope is a person named Jesus. Hope is the coming of the Messiah. And Isaiah, as he's experiencing the darkness that's going on in that time, he says that a light is coming, and that light will dawn on us. Uh, But it's not a light that comes from us. It's not a light that comes from within us. It's It's a light that comes from outside of us. And that light is the light of Jesus. Not years ago in the 80s, you guys remember the whole We Are the World campaign? They had Michael Jackson, everybody else. Michael Jackson had the glitter glove on singing, which I still don't know why he had to do that. But some of you guys weren't even born in this year, so just pretend like you (laughs) were old enough. No shots to you. I wasn't coming for you right there, right? Uh, In the song We Are the World, uh, they said, we are the world. We are the ones to make a better day, so let's start giving. And everybody was crying because MJ was singing. It was like the greatest feeling emotionally. Uh, but we're, we are not the ones through whom light comes. And this is the teaching, and this is the offensiveness of, uh, and the confrontation of Advent, that Jesus Christ came because our righteousness would never be enough. That on our own, all we had was destruction. On our own, all we had was more and more dysfunction. On our own, all we have is more unraveling. On our own, we are not reaching God. And for Isaiah to tell us that for to us a son is given, he's saying that baby in the manger was born because your righteousness, your best attempts, your best efforts would never, ever be enough. And it's going to hope. Real hope doesn't come from within you. And this is super offensive, especially to millennials, uh, because we believe, I was born in 81, so I'm like in a tweener age, all right? I deny most millennial things. Like, I'm not a millennial, but technically, I guess I am. So you got me there, all right? Um, One millennial was very happy about that. (laughs) 
Thank you for embracing me, millennial. <laughs> hey, millennials like to believe, and all of us kind of have this thing that we like to believe that, you know, we can, we're the ones that are going to be the ones that make the change. And this is not saying that God doesn't use people to do amazing things, but real light, real power, real life, real vitality, real growth does not come from within us. So we see this gift of Jesus in Advent, this gift that's coming from outside of us to save us because we can never save ourselves. And that's the beauty of, uh, of, of the season of Advent. Isaiah 9 and 2 says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of the deep darkness, a light has dawned. And the angels sang, the shepherds worshiped, and the magi gave gifts because good news had come to this earth, and his name was Jesus, and our world has changed ever since his arrival. Now, the next scene is where Jesus hits the scene, and this, if you've uh, been in church for a little bit and you've read the Gospels, for example, redemption is a scene when Jesus arrives um, to um, enter the world that has been damaged by sin. And redemption, uh, we see in Isaiah 9 and 6, to us, a son is given. Um, and this is where we see the nature of what God offers us, um, the nature of what God is attempting to do in our lives, in our hearts. Uh, this is where the eternal God, listen to this, the eternal God entered into mortal history. God has entered into our history called the incarnation, and God joined his creation. Think about how profound that is. God joined his creation. God didn't leave you and me um, and sitting up in heaven in a recliner chair. God joined his creation. And God, made, God who made man became a man and lived the perfect life and died in our place, rose from the grave to conquer death and remains with his people until today. Now, there's never been a gift offered in the history of the world that ought to make us swallow our pride uh, to the depths of the gift that Jesus Christ requires us to do. Christmas means that two things. One, we're so lost that nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save us. But simultaneously, here's the good news. This is why they said it was good news. Because uh, God loved us so much, as it said, John 3.16, that he willingly gave us his Son. So it neither ignores the condition. It doesn't ignore the condition of fallenness, but it doesn't leave us there to, to fend and fight for ourselves. And the last act of restoration in the story is where God promises and God is actively working to renew us in this world. So scripture tells us, for to us, a child is born. Uh, and this child, Jesus, is born. And to us, a son is given. And listen, one of the things I love about um, even Renaissance and this crowd is we got a lot of people who come from a lot of different contexts. And um, if you were not born Jewish and reading uh, the Torah and reading the Holy Scriptures in, in Hebrew and all that stuff, uh, you probably wouldn't understand the full context of what Isaiah is saying when he says a son is given. Uh, it's very intentional that Jesus was not coming as um, God's cousin Pookie or something like that, right? <laughs> it's more than just a preference that Jesus is coming as God's son. It would have meant something significantly more to that crowd of people who were listening. They would have understood the whole backstory about the importance of a son. Now, this is not um, something that you and I can grasp super easily, so I want to spend a little bit of time and unpack some of this stuff. Uh, John Levinson, he's a Jewish scholar uh, and professor of theology at Harvard, uh, and he wrote a book called The Death and the Resurrection of the Beloved Son. 
Now, if you ever need some nice light bedtime reading, that's, the good, that's a good one to go to. You can read it to your kids. I got some copies that we're distributing in Renaissance Kids right now. Uh, and he explains something that us individualistic, modern people don't necessarily get. So uh, our culture today is a very, very individualistic society. Um, their cultures in the ancient Middle East were a very collectivist society. And here's what I mean. Uh, back in the day, for example, um, all of your hopes, all of your actions would come out of whether or not it brings honor to your family. Does this career, does this choice, does it honor my family? Now, our, our culture is much different. Our culture says, is this true to me? And I don't care what anybody in my family thinks. I'm going to do it because if it's true to me, this is where I find my truth. This is where I find what's going on. And I'm going to do it because uh, this, we live in a very individualistic society. And we, our culture would actually berate somebody who's doing something just because it makes their family happy. Now, both cultures are right and both cultures are wrong. I do think we should live a life in which we honor people in our family. And I also think that we should follow God to where he calls us to live in courageous and bold ways. So I'm not saying one culture is better than the other. But when Isaiah was writing this uh, to uh, these people, he was writing it to a very, very, very collectivist society. And here's what's so amazing about giving up uh, a son. This is what John Livingston says in his book. By giving up a son and the firstborn son, you weren't just giving up a sacrifice, you weren't just doing that. It wasn't just a nice sacrifice of someone that you loved. The firstborn son represented all of the hopes, all of the dreams, and all of the wealth of the entire family. The firstborn had the entire estate. They did not split the estate uh, up into different pieces. Um, one person called the partifamilias had the complete control of everything in the estate. That person was the hope of the family. That person was the hope of the entire generation. That person inside of him had all the hopes, all the dreams, all the aspirations, all of the wealth in one person. So for scripture to say that God gave us his son, his only son, this is what scripture is saying. God gave us not just a nice gesture, but God emptied himself and gave us everything in Christ. And that there's literally nothing else, there's nothing better in all of creation. There's no better way that God could have uh, communicated to those people what his message was to us in giving us a child. That God giving us his son, his firstborn son, meant, and his only son, meant that God was emptying out everything he had and giving it to us in Christ. Now, this is what it means uh, in terms of the depths of how much we need God. It means nothing less than God emptying himself of all everything and giving us Jesus Christ could have saved us. It wouldn't have been uh, a ram or a goat or anything else. Nothing else could have washed us. But simultaneously, God willingly, because he loved us so much, gave us his son. Uh, We've talked about it here at Renaissance a good amount, um, and we've gone through some Old Testament passages, and we've tried to teach people how to see Jesus in all of the Scripture, because all of Scripture is all one story, and it's all pointing to this one climax of Jesus coming to earth to be our redemption. And there's uh, so many Old Testament stories that give us shadows of what God was trying to communicate. And we're getting glimpses of what's going on. And right here is when we see the final, uh, or not the final, we see the climax of the episode. And this is like season five premiere and, um, of, uh, of what God is doing. 
But going back, all throughout, there's so many different Old Testament stories which give um, shadows and glimpses of what God was trying to communicate. And one of the best ones in, in trying to understand the weight of what God was trying to give us in a son is uh, with Abraham and Isaac. And if you guys grew up in Sunday school, uh, you, might have, you probably heard this story a uh, hundred times. Uh, Abraham was called to sacrifice his son Isaac as a test. Now, if you get some backstory, Abraham loved Isaac. Uh, Isaac was someone he prayed for for years and years and years, and Abraham never thought that he'd even have a child. And his wife, Sarah, gives birth to the son Isaac, and Isaac is the pride and joy of the family. And in Isaac is the, the fullness of Abraham's dreams, his hopes, his future, the family's future. Everything rests in Isaac. And Isaac uh, and Abraham is tested in chapter 22 of Genesis. It says, then God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain that I'll show you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son, Isaac. And he carried, him, he carried the fire and the knife. As the two went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Now, this is the climax of the story in Abraham and, and Isaac. Uh, this guy, Abraham, he's not a superstar or anything like that. He is uh, someone that God has uh, used in his story to tell us and give us a better picture of what Christ uh, has done in, in our lives and the importance of what Christ is like in, in our lives. And to the crowd that would have heard this, they would have heard uh, this story of Abraham and Isaac, and they would have understood the importance of a son and what God was trying to communicate in offering and, and asking Abraham to give up his only son, that he wasn't just asking him to give up someone he loved, but he was asking him to give up everything. Later in the scripture, in verse 9, it says, when they reached the place that God told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay him. But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Don't lay a hand on the boy, he said. Don't do anything to harm him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Here's what scripture is getting at when, Jesus, when Isaiah tells us, for to us a son is given. That what God was telling Abraham is that, Abraham, I know you fear me above all. I know you love me more than anything because you are not even um, uh, willing to hold out your son, your only son. So much so that you were willing to lay your son down on that wood. You were willing to, to have him placed on that wood to be a sacrifice for me. And this is what God tells us in giving us Jesus Christ, his son. That not is it, not only is it um, that now I can have, what God was telling Abraham was, now I know you, I have no doubt whatsoever that you love me above everything else because you've given me your son. This is what God is telling us. Because I have given you my son in Jesus, because I have given you my son in Jesus, who I laid on, that, on a piece of wood uh, and that was raised up from the ground and staked in the ground on that cross, because I have given you my son, now, there's no question, there is no doubt, there is no limit uh, that you should know how much I love you. 
and how much I am willing to go for you. Now, this is the teaching of, of Advent, that Jesus Christ came not because uh, we just needed a little boost, but that God himself had to empty himself and give us his best in Jesus, but simultaneously the love and the depths of which God has given us in Jesus. Now, I, I know we don't like to think of ourselves uh, as sinners, right? I, for myself, I like to think I'm not that bad of a person. I'm not Tom Brady. I mean, I don't know what all this... You guys aren't Patriots fans either. It's okay. You can, you can laugh. But when I, think about, uh, when I think about what Isaiah has prophesied to us, that for us, God has given us his son. For us, God has given us his best. Uh, I, hope, I hope what it does in my life and I hope what it does in your life is that it causes us to treasure and to cherish Jesus. It causes us to treasure and to cherish Jesus in ways that would shift and, up and change the way we see everything else. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, you know what's going on in our minds and our hearts. You know our fears. You know the things that we don't understand. God, you know all of the things that we don't know. Uh, Father, I pray that this season uh, we would see the depths to which uh, you love us. We would see the depths to which we were in need of salvation and the depths to which you have freely, freely given it to us. Father, I pray that the gift of Jesus would not be something that we can take it or we leave it, but I pray that we would treasure it. I pray that it would be our treasure. I pray that we would cherish it in such a way that we'd be willing to give rid of everything else in search of that. God, would you capture our hearts? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.